Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the battle between lockdown and herd immunity, the politicization of everything, and the weaponization of wokeness. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Good afternoon and welcome everyone to another episode of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show, a beacon of truth blasting into your lockdown or quarantine or wherever it is you are forced to hunker down throughout the course of the coronavirus scare in Canada. My thanks to all of you for tuning in. We've got a great show planned up ahead and I want to begin right out of the gate by talking about the battle for herd immunity, which seems to be a battle against common sense and a battle against science that's being waged by so many of the activists and so-called public health experts that lawmakers and leaders in Canada and abroad are deferring to for pretty much anything and everything. Now, we've seen this trend unfold throughout the course of the Canadian response to it, where Justin Trudeau says we're listening to the experts, and then the experts change their mind between 9 a.m. Monday and 10 a.m. Monday, let alone, you know, the rest of the week, about what they think and what they recommend. And there's been no one worse about embodying this than the World Health Organization. But we'll get to the WHO's latest flip-flop very shortly. I want to talk about this study that was actually published last week in the British Medical Journal that I think when Justin Trudeau says, listen to the experts, he should be citing. It is a study that basically proves lockdowns not only are ineffective against COVID-19, but actually are worse than the alternative, which is not locking down your society and not locking down your economy. Now, this is a study that basically characterizes lockdowns as being about short-term gain and long-term pain. Now, what they did is they reused British government numbers and statistics, and they analyzed it. They went through every which way, and obviously modeling has its uh, shortcomings, so you've got to take things with a grain of salt. But the findings say that you can bring cases down with lockdown, but in the long run, deaths rise. And one particular example of this is that they said lockdown social distancing of those over 70 and quarantining the sick all significantly stunted the spread of the virus in the first wave. However, when those measures are scaled back, infection rates bound upwards, especially in young people, and pushed the model into a deadlier second wave. In that deadlier second wave, young people who are less susceptible to dying from COVID-19 had helped spread the virus to older populations who subsequently saw higher rates of death. The authors described the model as a postponement of the pandemic. Now, that's basically what governments have done. They lock everyone down. They do it for months. You're able to so-called flatten the curve. And then the second you pull off the brakes a little bit and things start to go, you get people that are going out that are getting it. And then those people are subsequently infecting older people who then die from it. That's basically the model that embodies what we're seeing. But they looked at another model where lockdowns are removed altogether, young people are allowed to go to school and to work, and those above age 70 are made to social distance and stay put, and those models show significantly fewer deaths. And what Graham Ackland, who's the lead author of this study, says is that lockdown does mean that the number of deaths go down, so there is a short-term gain, but it leads to long-term pain. 
If you had done nothing, it would all be over by now. It would have been absolutely horrendous, but it would be over. It wouldn't even have been completely lunatic to do nothing. Now, listen to that very carefully, because this is saying what so many people said from the very get-go of this, which is that the priority should be on protecting the vulnerable, not locking down anyone and everyone, which only works if the plan is that you can keep people locked down permanently. And this is the problem that we are facing right now, is that there's no such thing as a permanent lockdown. Well, let me clarify. We hope there's no such thing as a permanent lockdown. So at a certain point, you're going to have to get people out into the real world. And once that happens, all you've done is delayed the inevitable, which is the coronavirus getting through the population, infecting people, and then from there it, it balloons. And now governments are trying to recreate the thing they did the first time around, which is what got us to the point that we're at now. Now, the numbers are, are still very clear, and you can actually look at these very easily. New cases, yes, continue to rise, which again is unsurprising when you see as many tests being done as Canada is doing, and in particular Ontario. But when you look at deaths, yes, there have been a, a couple of smaller increases here, but for the most part, deaths have been relatively flat. And when we do see deaths, the cause of those deaths is elderly populations, long-term care homes in many cases, and these are the populations that need to be protected. So locking down everyone only delays the inevitable, whereas if you lock down those particular groups, those particular people, protect them, you have a better fighting chance at this, and that's where the priority should have been. And, and this study, in a lot of ways, and I don't want to downplay it because there is a, an academic rigor that's gone into it, but the study actually tells us something that is fairly sensible in nature, which is that unless you're prepared to lock down everyone indefinitely in perpetuity until the end of time, until the case count globally is at zero for you know a good three, four weeks, you're not actually going to achieve the result you want from it. And this sort of brings us around to the Sweden approach. Now, I will say Sweden right now is kind of being fetishized by some people as being the model of how a country should respond to COVID-19. And in other cases, it's being held up as like the worst case scenario. It's just this absolute hellscape where if you walk through Stockholm, you're actually just climbing over dead bodies. It's like Wuhan circa February 2020, March 2020. And, and in reality, it's probably something between those things. I, I don't think it's either a failure or a success story just yet, but it does seem like it's trending toward being a, a very significant success story. And if you look at this, the numbers, and this is just the uh, chart that comes up on Google when you uh, look for any country's uh, stats, you can see, yeah, they had uh, significant cases. It, it seemed to spike in uh, late June when most other countries were at the flat part of the curve or had flattened the curve. And now uh, Sweden is still ticking up just a little bit. But here's the thing. If you look at deaths, deaths peaked in April and have been in a steady decline ever since then. They're in single digits, oscillating between one and zero most days, and, and have been really since uh, late August. And why this is important is because even if you look at other countries that are in the so-called second wave, you see in the last couple of weeks, it looks like the deaths might be starting to go back up. 
Whereas in Sweden, it seems like they have flattened the death curve, which is far more important. But here's the thing. I, when everyone was jumping up and down on Sweden saying it was a failure and it was just calamitous and everyone was dead and my goodness, there was no one left. At a certain point, the media was saying there was not a single soul left in Sweden alive. Everyone had died. There was going to be no ABBA reunion. It was terrible. Uh, you know, your, your IKEA furniture is not going to assemble itself. Well, I guess it never does. But the problem is, is that if that was to be taken at face value, that would have accepted the premise that everywhere else in the world had beat it, which clearly the media is saying it has not happened. So if Sweden had a first wave and only a first wave, and Canada, the United States, everyone else is now getting right back to square one, then Sweden would have been vindicated. There was an interesting piece about this published by McGill's Office for Science and Society, uh, Professor Jonathan, or maybe not Professor, sorry, uh, Jonathan Jerry, who's got a, a master's in science, and, and he had said that Sweden tends to be the, these are my words, but the Rorschach country, where people that are pro-lockdown see Sweden as the reason why you need lockdowns, and, and people who are anti-lockdown see Sweden as the success story. He said, but in reality, Sweden has not as of yet distinguished itself all that much from any other countries. The, the, the tracking looks a bit different, but the overall result, he says, is not. Now, I don't entirely agree with his conclusion, but I, I do think there is some truth to the idea that Sweden has become a very politicized example right now, whereas I think if we're going to be able to look at Sweden and say, yes, they've beat it in a way that is better than everyone else, then I think that would be something that we see in a few months' time. But here's the thing. What Sweden has not done is sacrificed its economy for the idea that maybe, just maybe, it will help flatten the curve. And that's the big problem with the Western approach, with the Canadian approach, is that they have decided to sacrifice the economy, not even based on a guarantee of beating COVID-19, based on the possibility of beating COVID-19, which if the second wave is existing, if it's a real thing, all that lawmakers have done is proven that their first wave lockdowns didn't fix it. So all the experts right now that are getting up and saying, oh, well, the second wave is here. Well, all they've done is proven that the calamities that they unleashed on the economy by shutting down businesses, that they didn't actually solve it. And it's going to take a long time before we genuinely start to see the repercussions of lockdown on everything from suicide, domestic violence, drug use, unemployment, homelessness, poverty. It's going to be a long time before we see the real death toll, not of COVID-19, but of the measures that were supposedly combating COVID-19, in which case the cure may well be worse than the disease. Which brings us to this clip, and I know a lot of you have probably seen it by now or read about it, but I couldn't let the show pass without talking about this. The World Health Organization now coming out against uh, lockdowns. This is a clip from an interview with Andrew Neil, who is a, just a tremendous, tremendous British journalist, probably one of the best interviewers in the world, and now he is doing something with The Spectator. And Andrew Neal was interviewing Dr. David Nabarro, who is the WHO's special envoy on COVID-19, and they talked about lockdowns. And listen to this exchange and hear what Dr. Nabarro of the WHO says about lockdown. But we had Professor Sunetra uh, Gupta from Oxford University on, and she was implying, and I'm interested in you because you have a global mandate, a global view, 
was that a problem we don't think about in lockdowns is that they're very nationalistic. That mm. if we lock down our economy, then it hits our economy. But it also means we are not buying stuff. We're not trading with weaker economies. We are not just destroying our own jobs. We're destroying the jobs of all those that in the poorer parts of the world that export to us. That seemed to me to be a reasonable point. Really important point by Professor Gupta. I want to say it again. Uh, we in the World Health Organization do not advocate lockdowns as a primary means of control of this virus. The only time we believe a lockdown is justified is to buy you time to reorganize, regroup, rebalance your resources, protect your health workers who are exhausted. But by and large, we'd rather not do it. Just look at what's happened to the tourism industry, for example, in the Caribbean or in the Pacific, because people aren't taking their holidays. Looks what's happened to smallholder farmers all over the world because their markets have got dented. Look what's happening to poverty levels. It seems that we may well have a doubling of world poverty by next year. We may well have at least a doubling of child malnutrition because children are not getting meals at school and their parents in poor families are not able to afford it. This is a terrible, ghastly global uh, catastrophe, actually. And so we really do appeal to all world leaders Stop using lockdown as your primary control method. Develop better systems for doing it. Work together and learn from each other. Mm. But remember, lockdowns just have one consequence that you must never, ever uh, belittle, and that is making poor people an awful lot poorer. So what he says there, pretty clear. We really do appeal to all world leaders, stop using lockdown as your primary control method. And a lot of people are, are now defending this, saying, oh, no, 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 he was taken out of context. For example, there was a, a piece in Forbes by uh, Bruce Lee, not that Bruce Lee, by another Bruce Lee, that says, actually, I wish it was by the, <laughs> the Bruce Lee you were thinking of. He said, WHO warning about coronavirus lockdowns is taken out of context. And this author of this piece in Forbes says that it's not a reversal, that uh, it's not an admission that lockdowns are harmful, it's not a recantment of previous WHO advice, but in actuality, it kind of is, and, and not because of taking it out of context, looking at the full context, what Dr. Navarro is saying there is that you've got economies that have been decimated by this, you've got a, an ineffectiveness to lockdowns, and more importantly, what he's saying is that countries can't just rely on a lockdown and expect that it's going to accomplish what they want to. It should be the last resort. Whereas what governments are doing now in the West is treating this as a first resort and as an only resort. And if you listen closely, he talked about tourism destinations. I, I don't entirely know if he was saying go on vacation, but he did seem to be lamenting the effect that lockdowns had on tourism. The lockdown has had on, on people not taking holidays and not traveling and doing all that. So he seems to be saying, yeah, people should be able to go and, and have a, a vacation, have a holiday, because lockdown shouldn't be the only tool in a toolkit. And this is something that is tremendously valuable to this narrative because the WHO has been every which way. So I, I don't give them a great deal of credibility, but it, there is something from this that I could take, which is to say that if even the WHO 
is coming out against lockdowns, then surely we can suggest that lockdowns are not the top priority that lawmakers should be embracing right now because they haven't worked up until this point. Now, remember, WHO first said, ah, you know, COVID-19 is no big deal. And then they said, oh, we got to watch about backlash against China. And then they said masks are bad and then masks are good. And then it was travel bans don't work. And then it was, yeah, travel bans are fine. And now they want you to be able to take your holidays. So again, I, I mean, the WHO is kind of like, uh, you know, the the uh, the one man, one stop shop, so to speak, for every position imaginable on any issue imaginable. But what Nabarro is saying to Neil here, I do think has the ring of truth in that governments need to stop moving forward with this as though you can eradicate the virus from existence just by keeping people locked down. And my friend Mark Stein had a, a really interesting point on his show last week. He said when the height of the pandemic in, I guess it was March or April in Italy, uh, when Italy locked down, they were not locking down to keep the virus out of Italy. They were locking down to keep the virus in. You can't lock down, Mark was saying, to keep something out. You can only lock down if you've already got it and you're trying to prevent people from, from getting it out of that country. And that's where the geographic stuff comes in to be very important and why governments should have moved earlier to close the border, should have actually closed the border. And if you did that, you would have actually been able to keep your country somewhat insulated, at least for longer, until you could build up the hospital capacity, which was always the first priority. So the moving goalposts of this, which we've talked about on the show, are still very much alive and well. And just by the way, remember, we're being told now it's about until we have a vaccine. We've got to wear masks until we have a vaccine. Well, take a look at this one article about one such vaccine. Johnson & Johnson's been working on one, and they've had to pause this vaccine study due to unexplained illness in a participant. Now, in a lot of cases, uh, if something comes up, even if it's unrelated to the vaccine, they have to halt it. So it's not necessarily indicative of the vaccine that they're testing, giving this participant an illness. But the whole point is that this is going to happen. The idea that we could just have one of these ready to go on store shelves, injected in people's arms by the end of the year, was never going to happen, and it's still not going to happen. And even with all the companies and countries and governments and research institutions in the world racing to come up with a vaccine, it's not going to be a quick, speedy, expedient process. And we're already at the point where flu shots are coming out and, and now people are getting their flu shots from local pharmacies or whatever, but that's not ever having buy-in from 100% of the population. So the idea that we are just going to be able to sit down, wear masks if we go out, not travel, do all of these things up until the point where we have a vaccine means we're going to be doing this for a while. That means you should never accept governments making a vaccine the benchmark. Absolutely not. If you allow governments to make vaccines the benchmark, you are justifying and licensing them to keep you locked down for quite a while. Lockdown and loaded. That's the, uh, the name of the show. So where do we go from here? Well, for starters, we need to accept that this is a battle of ideas and a battle of information, the experts versus the quote unquote experts, the real data versus the data that are politically convenient to leaders who benefit from keeping everyone locked down. They benefit from the fear. They benefit from just saying, you know what? You just stay in your house. We'll let you know when it's safe. We'll let you know when you can come out. 
And this happened last Thanksgiving. Now, look, we won't know for another couple of weeks whether there were, you know, mass uh, unleashings of the virus, if you will, over Thanksgiving weekends. But governments were telling people, you don't get to have Thanksgiving dinner with your family. And when I looked on my uh, Instagram or Facebook and I saw people's photos from the weekend, it did seem like people were having, you know, Thanksgiving family dinners. And I say, good on you. I don't really care. I don't really care because I trust people to make the decisions that are right for them. I trust people who have vulnerable family members to not invite grandma to dinner if that's going to be the the issue or to not visit grandma if there's a chance that you have contracted COVID-19. I trust people to do that. And that is one of the great contrasts between Sweden and the West outside of Sweden. Sweden decided to say, you know what? We trust our citizens. The approach in Canada, the approach in Britain, the approach in Australia is that we do not trust you to make the right call. And if you look at cases that have happened where there's been a house party or people have picked something up at the bars, all of these other things, and you're saying, well, this is proof that you can't trust people. No, it's proof that there are stupid people everywhere. It's proof that there are stupid people everywhere. You don't play to the lowest common denominator. If governments do that, it basically presents the idea that everyone's a moron rather than saying, okay, the people that are protected, their benefit comes from them making those decisions that are right for them and for their families. Protect the vulnerable. Don't keep the population locked down forever. And if you think that's hyperbole, just look at the goalposts as they move right before your very eyes. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Speaking of lockdowns, people are finding themselves getting stir-crazy, getting cooped up, and looking for anything and everything they can do that doesn't violate the spirit of social distancing but still gives them a little bit of leisure. And uh, leave it to Singapore to come up with a way around this. Singapore Airlines has sold out numerous flights. Well, not really flights. It is a case where you go on a jet that remains on the tarmac and you have a good old-fashioned airplane meal. Yes, Singapore Airlines, I've never flown on it, but it's quite a lovely airline by all accounts, has started to uh, put tarmac meals on its largest planes, the A380s, the uh, the Airbus A380 jumbos, for uh, 470 US dollars. You can uh, sit on an A380, the world's biggest passenger jet, and you can have a, not a flight to nowhere, you literally just go exactly where you are, which is nowhere, and you sit down and they give you in first class a four-course meal, in economy a three-course economy meal, so it's not like a better meal, it's the, the meal you get in the airplane. They did this with uh, one particular date, or two dates rather, and they sold out with half an hour, Half an hour after opening, they sold out, and now they've decided to open more options, so they've got different seatings for lunch and dinner, and the idea that I find fascinating here is that, like, if you're going to go do it first class, if you're going to go, no one goes to economy for the food, you go to economy for the destination, and the destination in this case is nowhere. So if you're going to do it, splurge for the uh, the first class suite, which again, is like a private suite on, on Singapore Airlines uh, A380, 
and they have to social distance as well. So half the seats will be left empty. Uh, you'll be able to uh, have a bit of distance between you and other people. But here's the part that I find hilarious. For those seeking to bring the in-flight experience into their living rooms, Singapore Airlines is offering home deliveries of plane meals. So if you can't get enough airplane food on the plane, you can actually get uh, airplane food takeout, which I have had some good food on planes, believe it or not, never that good that I would want to bring it home. So this is where we are now. And, you know, it's easy to kind of poke fun at these things and enjoy the novelty of it. But there's something very sad in this too, because this is coming from a place where people are so desperate to just do anything that they will take something that on its surface is a pretty sad and insignificant thing. They're so desperate just to have some form of recreation or joy or get out of the house that this is what they do. And Singapore is a city state, by the way. I mean, if you're in Canada, you can travel a great deal of distance and still be in the country and be traveling domestically. In Singapore, you could like walk from one end of the country to the other. And it might take you a little bit of time, but there's not a lot to see without leaving your, your country. So I get why people in Singapore are a little frustrated. And they also like aren't allowed to chew gum in public. So, I mean, let's face it, leisure is hard to come by there. Here's the thing, though. I uh, used to travel a lot before this year came and for, uh, you know, sometimes stories that I'm covering uh, for True North and also for other uh, duties that I take on, whether it's public speaking or, or some of the consulting work that I do. But the thing is, I would be fascinated fascinated if Air Canada could swing something like this because I like Air Canada I travel with them a fair bit but you know they're not typically known for you know their service and economy so if I were to see something like this uh, with Air Canada I'm not sure they would sell out as quickly as Singapore does I actually did an Air Canada focus group last week believe it or not and it was a lot of fun I actually enjoyed it because it's like I've got a captive audience with the people that make the decisions at Air Canada, which most people would just kill to have. And some guy on the focus group was like complaining about the nachos in the lounge. So it was the epitome of first world problems. But right now, I think if you're taking a flight to nowhere, because they tried that, they tried to do the flight that actually just flies around and then lands where it took off from. And then all the environmentalists ruined that. So that's why you have to get the meal on the tarmac, because all of the uh, climate change freaks were the ones saying, oh, no, 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 you can't just take a plane to nowhere it's like oh shut up like again give people some semblance of joy in their lives if this is all they have and speaking of trying to take the joy out of things the chch network in ontario based in hamilton was airing brady bunch reruns on the weekend they got the rights to an old show a great show and this is the message that preceded it the following presentation is a product of its time. It depicts prejudices that were wrong then and remain unacceptable today. CHCH does not condone discrimination of any kind. Rather than ignoring past discriminatory practices, exhibiting work like this allows viewers to engage in thought or discussion that educates or promotes the importance of social justice and inclusivity. Viewer discretion is advised. This was shared by film critic Jim Slotek, who said, I was intrigued by this disclaimer, fairly rendering, rending its garments over the transgressive programming it was about to air. It turned out to be... The horror, the Brady Bunch. And this wasn't the only trigger warning. Someone else uh, responded and pointed out that they've actually seen 
this on Seinfeld reruns that were airing this weekend. Before an episode of Seinfeld on CTV, this program is presented as originally created. It may contain language, attitudes, cultural depictions, and racial prejudices, which may cause offense. So it used to be that you get the warning for, oh, you know, there's a bit of nudity or a bit of foul language. Now it's that, oh, this is racist. Seinfeld's racist. Brady Bunch is racist. And this is just laughable but shameful in the same way. And there's a bit of hypocrisy, too. If it's so bad, don't air it. If you think it's so offensive, don't air it, which suggests they're just trying to go through the motions of claiming to be woke, of just trying to deflect against any potential criticism that someone sends their way. But my goodness, this is actually quite embarrassing that this is what passes for a a real discussion about any of these issues. So you're now not supposed to just watch the Brady Bunch. You have to watch the Brady Bunch and then have a, a conversation and engage in thought and discussion that educates and promotes the importance of social justice and inclusivity. Is that what you wanted to do at Thanksgiving? Is that what you wanted to do at the Thanksgiving dinner table? Talk about all the ways in which uh, the Brady Bunch no longer holds up to uh, the standards of 2020. This was like the Liberal Party tweeting out on, I think it was Saturday or something, if pumpkin pie gets political or debates get a bit foul on FaceTime, note the double entendre, we've got you covered with a generous helping of pointers about the Liberal government's work to keep Canadians supported. So it's already bad enough that you had to have a Zoom Thanksgiving dinner instead of an actual turkey dinner at a table with your family, but now you get Liberal talking points, (laughs) Liberal talking points that you were supposed to like pull up and wait for the moment when, you know, uh, your know, Uncle Joe says, well, you know, I, I don't really like this ban on plastic. Well, the liberals have you covered because, as you see, what's this about a ban on plastic? See the answer. Uh, here we go. Yes, over 3 million tons of plastic were discarded as waste in Canada in 2016. That's as heavy as 216 million turkeys. Our plan will create jobs, uh, blah, blah, blah. And this is the, this is great. I hear Aaron O'Toole wants to take Canada back. And then there's, of course, the answer about how we won't let conservative austerity carve up cuts to the support that Canadians need. You know, I've I've been at a great many Thanksgiving dinners over the course of my life. Not once have I ever heard anyone say, okay, uh, can you uh, can you pass the yams there? Uh, you know, I hear uh, someone wants to take Canada back. I was like, wait, is it, I, do we, I don't know if we have that. Is it beside the yams? Like, I, <laughs> this is the, like, who are you at Thanksgiving dinner with that this is what they're bringing up? And more importantly, the only thing worse than that is being at Thanksgiving dinner as well with the person who's like, oh, well, wait, I... I've got the talking points. Okay, uh, index, let's see, uh, paragraph B. Ah, yes. Uh, so the uh, uh, parliamentary resolution 42-7. Oh, get, like, like, they're trying to take the joy out of absolutely everything. You can't watch the Brady Bunch. You can't have Thanksgiving dinner. You can't go to the Oscars without seeing it. it like, everything is politicized. Gloria Steinem, back in the heyday of her feminist advocacy, once said that the personal is the political. And this has gone a step further than that to be where everything is political. The the everything is political. If there's something that's free of politics, well, we can change that. We've got an answer to that. You are no longer allowed to not be political. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. We'll stay political here on True North. Stay with us. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. 
Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. 2020 has been, in many cases, the cursed year. If you want to know why, we might have a glimpse of the answer to this. It involves a woman known only as Nicole, a Canadian woman who apparently was on a, a trip to Pompeii in Italy and stole some artifacts from the site. Now, she has returned them, not because she has a guilty conscience, but she thinks that st stealing these artifacts uh, made her cursed. She said since stealing them, she's twice had breast cancer. She's now asking for God's forgiveness. She sent a letter to a travel agency nearby the site of Pompeii with the artifacts saying I'm returning them. She stole them 15 years ago, but it's been weighing on her conscience since then. So maybe this is just, you know, some karmic forces that are in the world that are unleashing it, not just on, on her, but on everyone. And that's the answer to uh, what's been happening in 2020. I spoke last week on the show about this policy from Yelp, where they are now basically going to flag businesses that have been accused of some sort of racial or racist misconduct. And they're doing this in a way that makes it so that when you go to that page, you'll see, ah, yes, you know, Joe's bakery was accused of racism, so I'm not going to go there. And it's, it's not just like a little tiny little image in the corner. It's like a big pop-up message that you need to see if you're looking at this place in the eyes of Yelp. And I got a lot of response to that. And a couple of people that said, I misunderstood the point of it. And I, I wanted to delve into this in a bit more detail because what Yelp has done with this is, is they've done one thing here that I think is good in, in that if anyone is uh, doing a rating of a business for whatever reason, they go and they give it the stars and they describe their experience. You have to rate based on your own experiences though. The problem that Yelp and TripAdvisor and Google reviews and all of these places have is that if someone reads an article about, what was it, Joe's Bakery, and they, they live in, you know, Wisconsin, and they read an article about Joe's Bakery in uh, Halifax, and they say, oh, they're, they're racist there, people will go on, having never been to Halifax, having never been to Joe's Bakery, having never been to Canada, and say, oh, well, this is uh, terrible, they're racist. And overnight, uh, business will go from five stars to one star because of thousands of people that have never been there rating it. So what Yelp has done is they've f frozen those. So if an influx of people are rating a business, then they are going to say, hey, uh, you know, are all these people actually going there? And they're going to freeze it so that only legitimate ratings show up. So they're using this as an antidote to that, which has caused some people to defend it. But my criticism still stand because what Yelp is doing is allowing weaponized allegations against a business, weaponized media reports. I have seen stories, and I'm not going to go through them because they're too numerous, but where people have gone out of their way to pick a fight with a business. In one case, it was an indigenous person that went around to different costume stores to try to find ones that had offensive costumes or like, you know, one that had like, you know, traditional native headdresses just so that they could call them all racist. I've seen other cases where people have been accused of stealing. Maybe they were stealing and then they cry racism and the media picks it up without looking at the core allegation. There are lots of situations where a business will be accused of racism when no such thing has occurred. And what Yelp has done is now put forward a policy that codifies that, a policy that allows anyone who gets the media to write about one of these things is now justification for Yelp to brand a business as racist. And the point that I raised last week on this that I'll restate now is that businesses have enough to deal with at this point in time 
that they don't need to add on to this, the weaponization of allegations of racism. And again, it's not to say that racism should be tolerated or accepted. It's to say that we should have a, a pretty clear definition of what that is. And Yelp doesn't really have that. And the media doesn't really have that. I mean, take a look at Facebook. Facebook issued a new policy this week that it will now be removing any Holocaust denial content. So if anyone posts something that denies or distorts the Holocaust, uh, Facebook's hate speech policy will prohibit it. And they're seeing an increase in anti-Semitism. They've just done a, a mass ban on groups that were connected to QAnon and other sort of militia groups. Facebook is trying to claim that it's doing its part to keep the internet safer. And I actually know notably in the past, have said that I think free speech includes the right to say egregious, offensive things. And the point that I, I raised an example on my show years ago was that that would include the right to deny the Holocaust. It would be egregious, it's stupid, it is anti-Semitic, but it is a protected form of speech. And then the, the liberal media had gotten insanely up in arms about that by saying that I was supporting Holocaust, and I'll know I was supporting free speech. And in fact, I know a great many Jewish people that believe the same thing as me on this. But here's the thing. What Facebook is doing is it's right. It's a private company. They say, you know what? We've decided we don't want uh, this form of anti-Semitism. They can make that determination. And people can decide where the limits are and how acceptable or, or unacceptable certain limits are on whatever word. And, and we see Twitter go even further on this. Twitter will say, uh, you know what, you can't misgender someone. That's a, a form of hate speech. So people can discuss the degrees. But at least there is a clearly delineated policy. There's a clearly delineated line. If you do this, it is wrong. The Yelp approach, which is the one that more and more people are moving towards, is a lot murkier. What is, what is racism? If you've been accused of racism in the media, what is that? And we all can identify what racism is when we see it, but can you define it? Can you truly define it? And if so, do you want that to be weaponized where any small business that has any altercation with someone that is branded in a certain way is, for the rest of its existence, going to be cataloged and categorized as racist on Yelp? How do you expect a business owner trying to get by to escape from that? I don't. We have to wrap things up. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to the show today. We'll talk to you in a few days here on Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more of it, we need your support. Head on over to andrewlawtonshow.com and click donate to support the work that we're doing and stand up for independent media. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.